Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 115 of the Speaking Club podcast. Based on my visit to the shops yesterday, I feel that quite a few people don't understand how long two metres, or if you want it in feet, that's 6.56 feet is. And if you're experiencing that too, then feel free to share this. It's roughly the span of both your arms extended sideways times two, the length of my brother-in-law Neil lying down, or the standard size of a coffin. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey! So, I am well chuffed with my guest today because Mike Michalowicz is a best-selling author, a speaker, multi-millionaire, business owner and a man that Simon Sinek calls the top contender for the patron saint of entrepreneurs. However, his work today came as a result of learning some crucial business and life lessons after losing everything he'd made from selling two companies. Since then, Mike has devoted his life to finding better ways for himself and other entrepreneurs to grow healthy, strong companies. He's a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and business makeover specialist on MSNBC. And he's also a popular main stage keynote speaker on quite a few different entrepreneurial topics. And one of his most popular books, which you might have heard of, and systems, is Profit First, which is used by hundreds of thousands of companies across the globe to drive profit. He's written a lot of other books, and his latest book, Fix This Next, is accidentally but perfectly timed to help business owners who are suffering as a result of the current crisis. So in this show, I'm getting the lowdown from Mike on many things that will help you as a speaker and business owner to move forward despite the challenges that you might be facing at the moment or if you're listening to this when it's all over, when you're facing any challenges on the journey to success. Now, before I cut to the interview, though, I did want to mention the Speaking Club Facebook group. It's called the Speaking Club Facebook Hub, and I'll be sharing more tips podcast bonuses and going live regularly so that you can ask me questions you have about speaking, storytelling, pitching, humour or story-led marketing. And there's a link to the group in the show notes, but just search the Speaking Club Facebook hub on Facebook and you should find it. Oh, and one last thing. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a rating and a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It means the world to me, it helps other people find the show and it keeps things ticking along, helps us out. So I really appreciate that if you could do that. Okay, let's cut over to me and Mike. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, Mike McCallowitz. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, that's a smashing. I've got so many questions to ask you and I know your time's precious, so I want to, to get on. <laughs> now, the big things was, was how you kind of lost... Uh, money after selling a couple of businesses 
And I was curious to, to find out from you what you would say was the biggest reason you lost the fortune you made after selling your second company. Oh, it's very clear. It was two things. It was arrogance and ignorance. <laughs> okay. And the quick backstories, I had uh, sold two businesses in the tech space. One of the companies was a private equity exit and the other one was acquired by a Fortune 500. And I thought, I thought I was Midas. <laughs> I thought I knew everything. And uh, I started another business that was, um, as, as an angel investor, I was investing in all these different businesses. I was horrible at it. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, based upon that horrible move, but also just blowing money to live my new normal, my new normal, you know, I, I wasted everything. And it took me two years uh, only, and I evaporated all my wealth, uh, my family's wealth. And um, I had to come home to my wife, I have three children, and tell them we're going to lose our house because of what I'd done. We're going to lose our cars, all of our possessions, which we lost. And we had to start new. Um, but looking back upon a period, it was as dark as it was, and I wish it upon no one, it, it woke, my, woke me up to understand that I didn't understand really what made entrepreneurship successful. And I devoted my life from that period forward to investigating the journey of successful entrepreneurship and simplifying it as, as an author. Now you've written multiple books. I'm going to touch on some of them, but I was curious as well. As your first book was The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. Um, right. And I was surprised, you know, looking back from here, that it wasn't profit first. Was that, that not such a big part of that journey for you at that time? Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's correct. It wasn't a big part of my journey yet. I, I hadn't mastered it. And for me, it takes me about five years to write a book. So when I have an idea, because um, I, I own businesses today and mm-hmm. I've always owned businesses, I test out my own companies and I tweak it and then I study with other entrepreneurs. So I mentioned it in Toilet Paper Entrepreneur um, as just one paragraph about it and that was it. And then people started inquiring, hey, give me more details about it. So I started testing it. Um, beyond just my own myself, my own business with other companies. And, and then I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal about it. And that article hit. And I was like, oh, this is something that really we need to explore. And so uh, I kept on testing and improving it. And uh, five years later or six years later, out came the Profit First book. Wow. And that has had a massive impact. And I know there's like yeah. quite a few accounting professionals that have kind of crossed over into your profit yeah. first camp. And, and it resonates with me because I'm one of those entrepreneurs that you talk to in the book that looks at the bank account <laughs> rather than all of yeah. the, you know, all of the forecasts that I, which I don't particularly understand. It's not my area of expertise, but how, how is, I'm curious as to how is the world of traditional accounting responded to your method? Have they embraced it or poo-pooed it? How's that gone? Yeah, well, initially it wasn't favorable. I can assure you that. I, I remember, because um, well, here's the core concept of profit first for those who are not familiar with it. Traditional accounting tells us that profit comes last. And it's even part of our vernacular. We say that profit is the bottom line or the year end. And what I argue in the book is that's total nonsense. It crushes business and profit must come first. And in execution, every time we bring in revenue, a percentage of those proceeds are immediately stored away for profit. We transfer that money out of our account and store it away. And then the remainder is what we run our business off of. And uh, so accountants, I was invited to do a major keynote um, about Profit First at an accounting event um, without them knowing because Profit First was becoming so popular. And they, this, the event host didn't really know what Profit First was about besides that it was great, gaining popularity. And then they, they discovered that I challenge the traditional accounting notion. 
and I was quickly disinvited <laughs> from oh, no. speaking. But that's how it started. And um, there's still many accounts and bookkeepers who resist it. Um, but I also acknowledge why, because they have been raised, if you will, they've been trained on the traditional accounting. And I don't argue that accounting is not a good system. It is a very powerful system. It's just when it comes to the cash management side, how we manage money as entrepreneurs is we don't use our accounting system, not most of us. Most of us trust our instinct and we look at our bank accounts and see how much money we have. So we need a system that channels that to the right outcome. And I'm I'm happy to say now there's over 350,000 companies doing Profit First and growing now exponentially. So it's catching on. And uh, there's many accounting professionals who've embraced it and use this as a tool in their toolkit to support businesses in sustaining profitability. And are those across the world or just in the US? Have you got any other sort of in the UK or Australia or anywhere else? Yeah, so it is across the world. Uh, you know, I know the US market the best, but mm-hmm. we have an office in Melbourne, Australia, um, mm-hmm. and we have an office in Armisfort, uh, Amsterdam, outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We have professionals in the UK that are teaching the system. Um, so it is catching on at an international level. And the nice thing is because it, it's, it's a percentage-based system. It doesn't matter what your currency is, mm-hmm. if you're using pounds or dollars. It makes no mm-hmm. difference. And um, as we open these different locations to support entrepreneurs, we discover that um, local culture and law uh, makes the system, you can tweak the system around that. So the base system um, stays relatively constant, but how you roll out Profit First in Australia is slightly different than you would do in the US and how you do in the UK or India or Russia and the different countries we're in. It's, It's all slightly different, but the essence of the system stays the same. Yeah, and it, it is very easy to understand and implement, I think. I've got into trouble in the past with the whole sort of accountancy stuff, so I'm welcoming this into, into my own business. So that's great. Nice. And I'm, I'm assuming, you've, I, know, I know this is to be the case, but I wondered if you could share some of the personal feedback or cases that you've seen where people have implemented the method, what difference it's made in their lives and business. Yeah, the, the stories come in regularly and um just a couple that popped to mind i remember this this company reached out they were in australia and they were in the heart of australia the 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 country it was the populace is more indigenous than anything and it was a husband wife and uh they were in the equine business Mm -hmm. raising horses i think for racing and um the financial struggle was overwhelming uh, it was the wife that reached out to email and said we were considering going separate ways, getting divorced because of the constant financial strain and the conflict it caused. And they implemented Profit First. And, and Profit First is not an instant solution. It's a permanent solution. It takes time. You start slow and you let it grow. And they said uh, there was a sense of instant relief. At least they had direction and something to put control around it. And within months, they had started achieving consistent degree of profitability in a business they hadn't for the, the 10 or 15 years prior prior to that. And um, and they started communicating with each other out of, not of fear anymore, but now out of forward thinking. And in part, it, it became a structure for how they communicated and it it served their marriage and they're happily together today. The challenge with, with uh, without being profitable is the constant duress and stress business owners are under. There's this yeah. constant panic, this check-to-check survival. I need money now. And we become, um, ma- it can become manic 
and confrontational, not because we want to, but you know, the, the world's on fire for us. Mm-hmm. And by implementing this, it just brings around contemplation and consideration because now we have runway. And uh, that's just one example of businesses that are just much more thoughtful and deliberate um, because they start taking their profit first and they've grown their profits substantially. Yeah, that's brilliant. And just a quick one on this is I've always been curious and I, I don't know if you, if you have a view on this in terms of whether you should you know, count the orders because there's a difference between orders coming in and cash you know, when you get that yes. invoice paid. Which which should we count? It's it's a really I always find this a bit of a conundrum in 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 my own business. I was cash is king. You know, yeah. orders orders are a promise. Uh, cash is a reality, and it's non negotiable. Once that money is in your bank or in your hands, um, we've accounted for it, and we can now address it. Uh, but orders can change. So someone can sign off on something, and as we're experiencing uh, this COVID yeah. crisis right now, there was a lot of orders. You know, we're recording this in the middle of April. There was a lot of rec- orders six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But today, some of those orders have evaporated. They've gone away. Yeah. So we, we can only count cash. Cash is king. Cool. That's, that's very definitive. Brilliant. And it feels, it's a nice segue. You bring up COVID-19 and it feels almost like serendipity that Fix This Next, which is your next book, is being published this month. And I, well, I know from my own experience, so many business owners and entrepreneurs are feeling overwhelmed and getting stuck because they just yes. don't know what to tackle first. Based on what's in the book, what would be the first things that you advise them to do? Yeah, there's, um, thank you. There, there, and it is serendipity. Uh, I, I wish these were not the circumstances, but I wrote the book to address crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it'd be what's called micro crisis, a competitor you know, comes into town and takes your clients, something like that. But this is macro crisis where there's economic shift that triggers the same kind of micro crisis for business. Well, the first step is understanding how we behave um, typically and then, and then being deliberate in our behavior. So here's an example. We can do this. You can actually do it in your mind or if you have a piece of paper in front of you, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it the survival trap. And what we do, say it's a large piece of paper. In the center of that paper, you write the letter A and put a circle around it. And that letter A represents where we are right now in our business. And for many businesses, it's crisis, challenge, you know, and that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Then as step two is draw an arrow away from A in any direction of your choosing. You know, it can be an inch long or whatever distance you want, but draw an arrow away from A. And what the arrow represents is that if you take decisive action right now to get out of crisis, there's a pathway out. But now I want you to draw another arrow in a different direction away from A. And that represents another choice you could make to get out of crisis. And you can continue this on and on, but maybe do four or five arrows out in any direction you choose now. And what all those arrows represent are there's a multiple amount of choices we can make that will escape crisis. Now we're going to do step three. In the bottom left corner of that piece of paper, write the letter B and put a circle around it. And B is what your business needs you to do. And what you'll probably see in that example is that none of the arrows or very few of the arrows are pointing to B. And that's the problem. What this represents is that we can take any action to get out of crisis, but we often do without consideration of what's the appropriate move to make. What's the step that will actually move the business forward in its entirety? So most businesses are in the survival trap. Any of those arrows you drew out represent simply a new A, a new crisis. 
So the sensation is today is like, oh, I just got through the day. Uh, hopefully tomorrow will be better. And then tomorrow is a repeat of today. It's like, gosh, it's happening again. And again, we're back in crisis. So many business owners move from one crisis to the next. We need to know what B is. And so I teach and fix this next. I call it the business hierarchy of needs. I translate it from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. But it's, a, it's a way to pinpoint the need structure of an organization. Now, there's one vital differentiation between Maslow's hierarchy and a business hierarchy. And in Maslow's hierarchy, we are hardwired into ourselves. I know if I have a physical uh, problem, like for example, if I'm eating uh, a, a, some, a meal and I start choking on that meal, my body will biologically respond to try to get it out to dislodge it. But in, in the business hierarchy of needs, we are not neurologically wired into our business. And many business owners think we are. Our mm-hmm. gut tells us to do something. Our instinct says we have to do that. Our, our feelings say we need to do this. But the reality is we're not wired in. So we need to first understand the business hierarchy of needs. And we also have to understand or research the empirical data behind it. Is this true or not through the data? And then we have clarity on where point B is. So could you give me like a tangible example in one of your own businesses or or a business of what A might be and B might be um, so that people can relate to it, if that makes sense? It makes total sense. So I'll outline the business hierarchy very quickly, and then I'll give you an example of a coffee shop that did an interesting project with it. So uh, the five layers of the business hierarchy of needs are as follows. Foundationally, every business needs sales. And sales is a creation of cash. No cash, no business. Mm-hmm. You can equate this to Maslow's hierarchy, which is the base level of physiological needs, breathing mm. air. You know, if you have no air, you suffocate. If, you, if your business has no cash, it suffocates. The next level immediately above the sales level is profit. Profit is the creation of stability for an organization. And uh, what I mean by this is that your business is not under that constant duress of surviving check by check. That it has, um, allows the business owner to make decisions deliberately and thoughtfully as opposed to a pure panic mode. And so how these two layers already start working uh, in correlation is the foundation of sales simply needs to be adequate. The creation of cash must be adequate to support a reasonable amount of profit. Once we have a reasonable amount of profit, is it adequate to support the next level? The next level in the business hierarchy of needs is order. Order is the creation of efficiency. And this is where a business um, is designed to run even in absence of the owner. Sadly, many small business owners carry the business on their back. It's yeah. The way they grow is by working harder, which is a no-win game. Um, but that's how many business owners operate their business. And the day they get sick or try to take off or just want to relax for a minute, the business starts to relax for a minute. So order is about building a system where the organization can run on its own. And there's two more layers. And the next level up is called impact. Impact is the creation of transformation. This is where businesses are not transactional, but transformational. Mm-hmm. They're offering the product or service changes people's lives. And then the highest level is called legacy. Legacy is the creation of permanence. This is where the business is designed to be of service uh, into perpetuity. And as I do my research for this book, and this book, no surprise, Sarah, took me over five years to write, <laughs> um, was this is the day you realize you were never a business owner. You've always been a business steward, meaning you brought this business to life, but it is about the business. It's about its impact. And you were just part of the storyline. So 
a quick story about, about this is uh, there's this coffee shop called Cottonwood Coffee. They're in South Dakota in the U.S. They have two locations, two coffee stores, and a roastery. And Jacob Limmer is the owner of uh, Cottonwood Coffee. And he'd been in business for 13 years. Uh, I actually documented his story in the book. He was uh, implementing or, or trying to fix this next and was resistant to it. His business was, was stagnated and he wasn't happy, but he was uh, committed to, to serving the highest level of the business hierarchy needs. He's like, I'm, on, I'm all about legacy. I'm about this business changing the world forever and, and I'm out of here. Uh, it doesn't need me anymore. But when he would do this examination, he actually found that he was at the sales level, meaning he didn't, this is like building a structure. You, you know, yeah. if you build a building, you need a strong foundation to build the first level and second level. He was already at the fifth level without considering the strength of his sales. And it kept on pointing back to this. And he was resistant. He said, I've been in business for 13 years. I'm beyond this. But every time he'd go through the process of evaluating his business, it pinpointed a sales need, specifically this concept called lifestyle congruency. Within each level, there's multiple needs, about five needs per level. And, uh, on the, I think on the fourth iteration of examining his business, it pointed to this need again. He said, okay, I, I guess I have to do this. And he focused on strengthening sales um, in the healthy way, in the right way, where it supported his, his own life, the way he defined it, but also attracted the right types of customers. Once he did that, he found the business he'd grown didn't have to be as big in the sales revenue or in revenue generated. It just needed to be stronger in its health and how it served clients. And it became a game changer for him. He shored that up. And for the first time in 13 years, the business started to grow faster. It started to uh, facilitate profitability. He was living more comfortably uh, on, and, and not check to check anymore in his own personal life as a result. So the business hierarchy of needs will challenge businesses in that this is not a ladder. We don't climb to the top and wave to our friends from up there. Yeah. This is something we cycle through. And regards to the size of your business or how long you've been in business, based upon the challenges that present itself now, there will be a clear B or way out. And it's always within this business hierarchy of needs. And, and you can do it through simple questions um, that, that, I, that I have in the book. But usually businesses can do an analysis within five minutes and know where they're being. That's Matthew. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and we'll talk uh, a little, little bit, just get the, the link and where people can get hold of the book. But um, this is a Speaking Club podcast. And I know the other thing that you are... Uh, very good at is speaking. How does it fit into what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure you know it's a little bit of a show right now yes. when it comes to speaking. Yes, uh, things have changed, but there's great opportunity here. So uh, speaking for me um, is a key way to promote, you know, the, the concepts and ideas and get people engaged in it. I always believe when presenting give people actionable, tangible direction, something that they can do immediately and see results. And um, I can't do that now in public speaking or live speaking. But in any moment uh, where there is change, there's also an opportunity for us to change to still be of service. So I'll give you a technique that speakers can use, but anyone can use. And I'll actually give context for this around a restaurant. I call it the one step back technique. And the realization I had, Sarah, is that whatever end deliverable we offer as speakers or authors or whatever our business is, is actually a culmination of many small steps. It's a culmination of many mini offerings, if you will, that, that derive the end deliverable. So if you're a restaurant, for example, because restaurants are all closed here 
and um, you're not permitted in them. Um, what we ask is, what does a restaurant do? Well, a restaurant delivers food to a table so people can eat food. So food at the table is the final deliverable. Then we ask simply, what happens one step back prior to that? Well, it's the, the delivery of food to the table. It's the waiter carrying the food to the table. Okay, carry out or take out is a great option. In fact, there's a restaurant in our area here that teamed up with a food truck, and this food truck is delivering uh, dinners to neighborhoods, and the restaurant has become just a massive kitchen and producing food for, for communities. Um, and, they're, and people are buying that, right? So it's not like they're, they're donating. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that's important, too, is I think many people revert in a situation like this to simply give until it hurts. And I believe we need to give and support each other. But the till it hurts part is wrong. Mm-hmm. We have to be sustainable. So if, if a restaurant just gives away all its food, well, that restaurant's out of business forever. So yeah. this business, in my opinion, is doing the right way. It's of service in a new way, but it has that sales foundation, the business hierarchy of needs addressed so it can be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, in this model, we go back one step prior. What happens one step prior to the carryout of food? Well, food's prepared in the kitchen. Well, why doesn't a restaurant prepare its uh, a menu or uh, I should say a cookbook for its 10 most popular entrees? And why not um, produce a video? You can have the chef produce a video of how she prepares the food. And why not actually do live cooking classes with people who buy a subscription to your restaurant to prepare these meals? So that happens one step back. It's a new offering. Well, what happens one step prior to that? And it's the uh, procurement of the raw inventory, you know, meats, vegetables, and so forth. Why not, uh, why not prepare those and, and cut them up and divide them up, deliver those to your customers as the ingredients? What happens one step back? So you keep on asking one step back. And what you notice is you actually have all these different offerings. We as speakers, if we simply start whining, and it'll take a few minutes, write down what happens one step before delivering a speech on stage. Well, it's the preparation of speech. It's outline. You know, it's, it's testing um, your concepts with with. Um, businesses or whoever you teach, why doesn't that become your new offering? And that's exactly what I did. I, I have rewound and said, what do I do that's of service to my customers in a new way? The number one piece of feedback I got is, Mike, I, when, to be a speaker, you have to have confidence walking on that stage. I don't have confidence in my business now. Show me how to get confidence. So we quickly made a course called the Confidence Course where we're teaching people around that. So we, we did the one step back from our speaking work or my speaking work to still support my readers and listeners. Cool. Cool. And I, I know that you use um, stories and humor a lot in your books. How important are they when you want, you know, let's go back into the, the world before COVID when you were speaking, yeah. how important are stories and humor in your speaking? Oh, absolutely critical. So stories are um, much more visual. So it's much more memorable as a result. If we just roll out facts and stuff, like, like just as we're talking today, it's harder for people to memorize the five levels of the business hierarchy of needs than it is to talk about Jacob, the coffee guy. Like yeah. we can remember him and visualize it because stories build pictures very quickly and it's easy to remember. And humor is a great way to disarm some challenging stuff. Now, it had to be appropriate. Like, I'm not like, saying, hey, let's do some COVID jokes right now. Like, you know, y- you have to be appropriate to the circumstances. But uh, when people have that relief of laughing, um, the, the more technical and more challenging things actually seem a little bit easier. So that's why I, I try to use appropriate humor yes. when, when the time presents itself. Brilliant. And, and for you, have you always been a confident speaker or is it something that you had to develop? 
develop. I, I was horrible. I knew that's the most important way to deliver a message, the most effective, I should say. And uh, so our local church, I started speaking at the church, doing the readings, and I'd volunteer over and over because no one would volunteer. And I would be up there shaking, um, and those those names are so hard to pronounce in the Bible. Yes. It was just, oh my gosh, it was the, my biggest nightmare, and my face would turn red. But our, we have a little county church where maybe 30 people attend, and uh, that's how I got my practice. That's great. And you, know, you do get better through practice. Right. Thank you so much. Mike. I have a couple of standard questions that I ask all my guests. Sure. What's yeah. the best thing that, that speaking has done for you? So the best thing is that speaking has delivered instant credibility. So, you know, when I go on stage, um, especially when I started, no one knew who I was. And it, it gives you this authority because you're on stage for 45 minutes or an hour or longer uh, presenting a concept. And I knew if I gave actionable advice that people would be compelled to uh, buy my books and, and support my business. So it's, it's the ultimate sales platform at the end of the day by simply being of service. Brilliant. And, and have you, I guess you, when you started off, have you had a worst gig? Is there a, a, a oh. memorable Oh my gosh, have I had worst gigs? Yeah. I'll tell you the worst gig ever. The worst gig ever was when I was starting out. They still happen occasionally where there's an audience that's not into it. But I was speaking at a college, a university, and uh, these fraternities were coming in to see me speak. Well, when I showed, I, w- I got to the uh, auditorium for the 300 students, and there was one student there. I said, where is everyone? They said, oh, this big party's happening on campus for the fraternity, so we're probably not going to have many people show up. No one showed, just that oh, one guy no. that was important. It was humiliating. Uh, I still delivered the speech. I was crying inside. I still delivered the speech to one guy who was on his cell phone just checking in on the party. And uh, I'll tell you, it was horrible, but it did tell me that I have a, if I'm committed to this, I have to be committed regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, don't worry. I had to do a whole Edinburgh stand-up comedy show to one person once, which, and I don't know who felt more awkward. But anyway, <laughs> the, show, the show has to go I feel on. your pain. I feel <laughs> yeah. your pain. Okay. Um, just a couple more. What's the one... A book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Um, uh, probably, there's so many, probably Dale Carnegie's How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. It's just a great, ah. great self-help book from the early 1900s. Okay, I haven't heard that one before. Cool. Um, and this is an interesting one to ask you. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why? Uh, best piece of business advice came from um, a business coach I hired, and he said, do not listen to people's words, listen to their wallets. And it was, it was the ultimate truth that customers speak the truth of what they like or don't like through their wallets, and there's no other indicator. So even if people are stroking me, stroking my ego and patting me on the back of how amazing or wonderful my idea is, until someone's willing to put down money for it, they really don't like the idea. That's brilliant. Cool. And last one. If you could have one mentor, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? <laughs> I'm going to feel bad who I'm going to say, because uh, you may consider him a treasonist, but uh, he was amazing for us, was George Washington. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> he was a terrorist, I guess. But uh, just, I've studied a lot about George Washington and his nobility. What I thought was so interesting was he was given the opportunity for ultimate power to be the king of the new country and uh, and declined it. I think I think there's a lot for me to learn from that humility and to be of service as opposed to a be of superiority. 
I love that. Well, you do embody that. It definitely comes across. Mike, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Now, I'm really keen to get this out. Where can people find out more about you? Go and get the new book, Fix It Next, Fix This Next. And and yeah, if they want to work with you or, or look at your courses or whatever, where's the best place for them to go? The, the best place actually is fixthisnext.com. And the reason is the best place. If you go there, there's details in the book and so forth, but we've set up a free evaluation. So you know, we only scratch the surface of the business heart game needs. You can take a free evaluation. It's 25 questions. It'll take about five minutes to pinpoint what you need to do in your business right now in this crisis. So that's at fixthisnext.com. It is totally free. Uh, no download. It presents right on the screen at fixthisnext.com. Brilliant. And are you on social media at all? Yes. It's Mike Michalowicz, which is the most difficult name to spell. But in Google, if you type in Mike, M-I-K-E space Mick, M-I-C, it will find me and you can find me all on social media. Brilliant. I'll put some links in the show notes anyway. Listen, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of that wonderful stuff. Good luck with the book launch. I'll be pre-ordering my copy. Um, (laughs) So uh, thank you so much again. And um, yeah, stay well. Yeah, Sarah, thank you for having me. And I'm also wishing you both health and wealth. Thank you very much. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. I can't tell you how chuffed I was to get Mike on the show. Well, actually, I did in the intro, probably. That's twice now. Anyway, please go and check out his website, mikemichalowitz.com, and, of course, the site for his new book, fixthisnext.com, to get that free health check for your business. Mike's a great example of someone who lives his purpose, and he's a very humble guy, too, just like his mentor choice, George Washington. I think Mike was a bit worried I'd be holding a grudge against George for the American War of Independence. But I think as a British person, one of the most upsetting things about that whole episode in history was the throwing away of perfectly good tea. Anyway, as ever, thank you so much for joining me and choosing the Speaking Club. Subscribe so you don't miss a show. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you enjoy the podcast... I would love it if you take just a couple of minutes to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Have a fantastic week. Keep safe. Stay at home. And remember, grab your life by the nuts and come and join the Speaking Club Facebook hub for extra content and community. Take care. Bye-bye. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book straight to the top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free, plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.